Today, I'm going to bring an extended quote from a very prominent leader a long time ago from West Point. Then he was ahead at Yale. And now he's the founder of the Rice University's Dewar Institute, which teaches leadership. The context is I want to talk about reasons I've heard lately, actually for a long time, on why people continue polluting even when they know that they're polluting. In the past couple of weeks, I've run into people. One guy I saw, I haven't seen him in a long time, and I talked to him about traveling and flying and its pollution. And he just said, there is no way I would ever stop traveling. I love to travel. I, and he'd been to like Florida, I think every month his family's there and he goes there all the time. And he goes at least once or several times a year, he travels around the world and he says, I just love seeing all these places. And I hear this all the time. People love to travel. People just want to get across the oceans and things like that. And I'm not talking about travel like taking a bike trip. I'm talking about travel like flying, heavily polluting stuff. I'm talking about flying, but it applies to all sorts of things. Getting takeout, getting coffee in disposable cups when you could just as well bring your own mug, eating stuff from all around the world out of season, taking taxis and shared rides when they could walk or take the subway, factory farmed meat, all sorts of things like that. These are the reasons I've heard lately. It's focusing on themselves, what they want. And sometimes I say to them, you know, those reasons for traveling, those were there 50 years ago, 100 years ago. The va- I don't dispute the value of going somewhere and seeing other cultures and learning about different things and spreading stuff like that. I don't dispute that. What comes to mind for me is that those reasons were there 50 years ago when we could doubt that we would actually raise the globe's temperature and cause the sea levels to rise. And, but that's how, it's changed. And I ask people, how do you count? Do you count in any way for... Our world has changed. It's hotter. It's more polluted and so forth. You know the deal. And our expectations are different. We have a different, we know what the predictions after now are going to be, and it's not pretty. Do you factor that in in any way? Or do you just say, no, I only look at the positives and I don't change at all about any other part of it. And basically, no one ever says, I take that into account. The way that they look at the world now is unchanged from how they would look at it from a long time ago. Another way I look at it is, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but my understanding is that focusing really on yourself over everything else is a depressed way of looking at things. When you're happy, you look at the world around you and you connect with people around you, and that's outward-looking. Inward-looking correlates with depression. So I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not sure exactly how that works, but I feel like focusing on yourself over the rest of the world seems like not a happy way of looking at it. it. It sounds to me a lot like, Addicts. Addicts are like, when is my next hit? They just focus on when will I get something that makes me feel good as opposed to making it happen for themselves. I usually respond to people asking them the questions about, do you take into account these changes? But also I suggest after you change, I believe that you will prefer stewardship in the way that someone in their 20s who goes out and parties probably wouldn't expect that having a baby and staying home and changing diapers, that they would prefer that to partying. But Every parent that I've met prefers changing diapers. They want to take care of their child. I believe that the feeling of stewardship, taking into account how your behavior affects others, others who are helpless to stop you from doing something that could hurt them, I believe that that is one of the great feelings available to humans, to be a part of something greater than yourself, greater than all of us, benefiting all of us and benefiting yourself. And that's available to us. That's what stewardship means is a oneness. And I think that's one of the great feelings available to humans. 
Now let's get Thomas Kolditz's view. Thomas Kolditz, going off his Wikipedia page here, he led the Department of Behavioral Sciences and Leadership at West Point for 12 years. Regular listeners might remember Everett Spain, who holds that position now, years later, a conversation that I learned from and loved, and I recommend going and listening to Everett Spain's conversation. That time at West Point was part of more than 26 years in leadership roles and 34 years of military service, culminating in his being a brigadier general. He was a founding director of the West Point Leadership Center. He was a visiting professor at the Yale School of Management and then became director of the leadership development program at the Yale School of Management. And then he was hired to become the founding director of the Doerr Institute for New Leaders at Rice University. And around this is when I met him. I spoke to him a couple times, although nothing particularly substantial. I think I tried to meet with him about a year ago when I was, a little over a year ago when I was at Rice University and I guess spoke in someone else's class. This guy knows what he's talking about. Oh, I didn't mention he has a book, In Extremist Leadership, Leading as if Your Life Depended on It, which has led to him being quoted in national media and all sorts of things like that. This guy knows his stuff. Where is he speaking? He's speaking on the leadership podcast, We Study Leaders. Regular listeners might remember I was a guest in 2017. I'll put a link to that because I recommend listening to it. And the hosts of that are Jan Rutherford and Jim Vazlopoulos. I hope I'm saying the names right. Rutherford was a former U.S. Special Forces soldier. Vazlopoulos is a C-level business advisor. Both of them have been doing this podcast for a long time. They've quoted me here and there on occasion. I listen to them regularly, not every single episode. Now I'm going to play for you an extended quote of Thomas Kolditz talking about ethics issues and leadership in challenging situations. So here's Thomas talking about leadership and focusing. Well, you'll hear it's about focusing excessively on yourself. How do we help, especially, you know, leaders that are just coming into their own, really stay on this moral and ethical road in a a rapidly changing world? You know, the way that I do it is I try to turn the focus away from these highly positive, emotionally laden values like courage and boldness, which people love to talk about and, and they love to hear about. And I try to refocus people on the fact that most ethical transgressions have at their root excessive self-interest. When you think about every kind of ethical transgression from stealing someone else's money to fleeing your post in combat to laundering money, it's excessive self-interest that's at the root of it. And business leadership does a terrible job of articulating what is excessive self-interest because most of these businesses are interested in making a lot of money and they are self-interested, but to an appropriate level. And so there are never Mm -hmm. these discussions about excessive self-interest. It's all be courageous or be bold or or that sort Mm -hmm. of thing. And ironically, excessive self-interest is at the very definitional core of what term? Cowardice. Mm. Cowardice is the expression of excessive self-interest. So when I talk to people about ethics, I don't tell them you you have to be courageous enough to do the right thing. I tell them just don't be a coward. Just recognize when it's becoming all about you, you know, when it's excessive self-interest, and that is a better guide than telling someone, you know, in order to make the right choice, you're going to have to be courageous. There's very little need for courage in business. 
there's a lot of need for people to stop being cowards. Yep. Well, oh, today like in the conversation I had today, it was really about we before me, sacrificing for the greater good, putting other people's interests ahead of your own. And that's a lot of what the discussion was about. But I really like the way that you articulated that because sacrifice, it feels like you've got to really subjugate yourself and, and really give up something. But what you're saying is, you know, stop being so selfish, self-interested, only thinking about yourself. I think that probably tastes different. I think probably more than 90% of business ethics problems can be traced right back to that, can be traced right back to mm. that. And, and, you know, Greenleaf and others started the servant leadership movement with a focus towards, you know, leaders not being in it for themselves, which I think was great. But I think a better way to teach it is to talk to people about their own self-interest and how they set that aside, rather than talking to them about, about projecting some sort of sacrifice or what have you. More like they're accepting some sacrifice rather than creating it in some way. Cowardice, these little glimpses of excessive self-interest happen all the time. And it's much easier to deal with something that's in common practice and point that out and work with it than it is to talk about heroes, for example. These flashes of opportunistic sacrifice that are never going to be repeated and are odd and, and unusual circumstances. But the little things where, where people just try to edge other people out in unfair ways. I mean, it gets down to how people drive. People, especially I found in the Northeast, drive with excessive self-interest. And it creates dangerous conditions for everyone. It's become a habit. People don't get called out for it enough. And so I, I think that's going to help a lot when people recognize that and start acting on it. Missing is calling these things out. We're not calling this out. We're not calling out this behavior, which he characterizes this is someone who knows his business, who knows leadership, who's worked with the top institutions in the world. He's, it's cowardice. This excessive self-interest is cowardice. We have the ability to face up to these things, and we're not doing it. So I wanted to bring you this perspective of when you're focusing so much on yourself excessively and not considering how your behavior affects others. From my view, you're missing out on one of the great human experiences. From his view, you're, it's just cowardice. We are not facing up to these challenges that we could. I can't help but add to this another quote from him later in this conversation. So I recommend listening to the whole conversation. By the way, I should mention, I've edited out ums and ahs, but otherwise I believe that I've left it unchanged. That's not to change any meaning, just to make it a little easier to listen to. And now I'm going to give a quote from Thomas Kolditz on why we don't lead effectively. And I want to keep in mind, a lot of people think leadership is authoritarian, telling people what to do. But in this case, I believe what he's talking about is leadership skills are how to communicate, teamwork, listening, asking questions, making people feel understood, social and emotional skills. Here's what he has to say about that in this country. There has been a real abandonment of leader development in higher education, in my view. Pushed away from the faculty. The faculty at universities don't do leader development at all. They tried to put it into these student affairs systems, but those are generally poorly funded they don't have professional people in them. They're, it's really a tough place to try to do quality leader development. And so we graduate 
people from universities, 2.2 million a year with high school level leadership skills. You know, our research here shows that if a person doesn't work in a formal leadership development program when they're in college, that they're no better the day they graduate than the day they walked in the door. The four-year education does nothing. Uh, in fact, the correlation between academic achievement and leadership, as we find it, is about zero. We graduate these 2.2 million people with no leadership skills beyond high school. And in industry, the leader development resources are in an inverted pyramid. 50% is spent on the top 2 to 3% in the organization. And the remaining 50% has to go all the way down to the bottom. So now you have poorly developed leaders in a system that's not going to pay much attention to them until they've got 15 years of work. And then they've got 15 years of bad habits and poor execution as leaders. It's almost like this giant strategic system designed to produce bad leaders for industry. As you said, faculty don't have experience leading themselves. They're academic. That's not bad, but they don't know how to teach people to do something that they don't know how to do themselves. And simply teaching theory doesn't do it. And I see this happening in the environment. What he says about the situation in leadership applies to the situation in environmental leadership. People read, write, analyze, debate, but they don't do. And so they don't know how to teach. They don't know how to communicate these things. And we get the results the same, that people don't know how to lead. And we have people coming out of school that don't know how to lead. And we have people who don't know how to act with regard to the environment. And so we're graduating people that come out of school also not knowing what to do about the environment, except to talk, read, write, analyze, debate, while they continue polluting as much as anyone. The systems don't change. Well, this is what I'm about, changing our beliefs, changing how we approach these things through doing, through acting. Please, if there's anything that you get out of my podcast, I hope that you look at what you care about. This four-step process that I described in my first TEDx talk, think about what you care about. Go back and forth with someone else. Don't just think, but talk about it with someone supportive, not judgmental, so you can get out what, what matters to you. Act on that. Find something to do that you care about so that you can act on something you care about and make it specific and realistic and time-bound and then talk about how it went afterward. I believe that that will lead you to do more. And what you do will teach you more. That experience, those challenges of how you face when people say it's not going to make a difference, when you don't feel like it's going to make a difference, but then when you find that it does, that's what's missing. That's why there's no joy. I hope there's joy in my voice. There's joy in everything that I do and I love it. And it's joy facing outward. It's, you will find that it creates community and it creates connection and it becomes outwardly focused, not about yourself, but about others. And I predict that you will wish you had changed earlier and you will want to help others through this process. So in summary, I wanted to share Thomas Kolditz's view. Of course, I want to credit Jan and Jim for bringing Thomas to us. And please listen to a whole bunch of episodes of theirs. Otherwise, this is a view of acting for yourself is cowardice. Do we want that? What can we do differently?